A significant proportion of Nazi rearmament in the 1930s was done by American companies, and it was paid for by British bank loans. Even in 1939, with war just weeks away, the British banks were still offering new loans to the Germans. By the time the war broke out, the Germans owed British banks £34 million. That's about £2.7 billion now. British bankers, led by the governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, argued that they couldn't just pull out of Germany without bringing down the whole London banking sector. But Montague Norman admitted that he was getting all his information from Helmar Schacht, the slippery head of the German Reichsbank, and for four years after Hitler came to power, Minister for Economics. So did the British really have to stay in Germany? Or were they choosing to? Good to see you at the History Café. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank, and I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to, and we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see where we end up. Back in the 1970s, the German historian Bernd Jürgen Wendt showed how trade and finance unduly influenced British policy in the 1930s. London's city finances saw Germany as their natural partner and were willing to overlook the atrocities of Nazism. They were also willing to ignore the criticism of some elements of the press, which by 1936 were openly calling for an end to lending to the Germans. Well, you can trace the Byzantine twists of British commercial and financial relations with Germany in Scott Newton's 1996 Prophets of Peace and also in Neil Forbes' 2000 book, Doing Business with the Nazis. What emerges is the continuing influence of Montague Norman at the Bank of England, protecting the banks who'd become dangerously exposed through their overlending to the Germans in the 1920s and especially in the 1930s. Forbes, in fact, found it very difficult to come up with direct evidence of the British bank's relationship with the Germans in the 1930s. Perhaps much of it disappeared down the rabbit holes of cloaking. You know, that practice we discovered in an earlier discussion in which businesses hide behind each other and behind fake companies, often in other countries, to dodge the regulations. The British Bankers Association also insisted that resolutions regarding Germany were secret And the Bank of England did the same. And it's obvious that at least some of the British businessmen had developed a very cosy relationship indeed with the Third Reich. Now, Montague Norman was sometimes accompanied on his visits to Germany, for example, by Ernest Tennant, a merchant banker. Tennant had befriended Hitler's henchman, Joachim von Ribbentrop, back in 1932, which was even before the Nazis had come to power. And when they did, Ernest Tennant openly welcomed them. In September 1934, after Hitler had declared himself Führer, a dictator, Tennant organised a trade delegation representing seven British industries. They lied that they had official backing from the Board of Trade and got themselves a seven-hour meeting with Schacht. And then they were ushered in to meet Hitler himself. Neither side would reveal what was discussed, but one indirect result was the Anglo-German Fellowship, 
which first met on the 11th of March 1935 and which became a conduit to connect Schacht in Germany directly with industrialists and finances in Britain. He used it to conjure the impression that he was working hard to save the German economy and, of course, improve relations between the two countries. Well, one prominent member of the fellowship was Lord Lothian, who also met Hitler in 1935. The American ambassador in Berlin reported in January 1937, during yet another of Lothian's visits to Germany, that Lothian, quote, is convinced that Hitler will not accept peace except at the price of domination of Eastern and Central Europe and the Balkans. Lothian personally would like to see Germany get that domination. Yeah, <laughs> not much room for doubt there. And the point is that although it could be difficult to get your business out of Germany, it wasn't impossible. Historian Simon Ball has shown that, for example, the British Metal Corporation made serious attempts to get out of Germany as the 1930s went on, partly out of horror at the moral implication of being involved in German rearmament. Well, BMC was part of a sprawling network of 21 mining and metallurgical companies connecting Britain to Australia, the Congo, Malaysia, Mexico, Canada and to the Metallgesellschaft conglomerate in Germany. By 1937, the company was suffering from bad British publicity at its German profits. It was also frustrated because it couldn't, because of Schacht's restrictions, actually get its money out of Germany. But it most of all objected to Nazi interference in its German conglomerate, which was obviously important to German rearmament. Finally, in 1938, the Nazis forced the German head of BMC's German operation, Richard Merton, to resign. The reason was... He was Jewish. Oliver Littleton, managing director of BMC, now flew to Frankfurt to try and disentangle his company from Germany altogether. Well, he arrived on the morning of the 10th of November 1938, which was the morning after Kristallnacht, when wild and vicious Nazi mobs were unleashed by Goebbels and attacked Jewish businesses. It haunts me today, Littleton said in 1963. The shops were attacked by these thugs who threw the stock from the shops into the gutter and added to them all the small household possessions of the owner. As soon as he could, Littleton bribed the local Nazi chief and got Merton and two other Jewish people out to safety in Britain. He now did everything he could to extricate his business completely from Germany. Though as others discovered, the Nazis made it almost impossible to break the link completely. Anglo-Persian oil, which was renamed Anglo-Iranian oil in 1935 when that country changed its name, also refused as far as possible to cooperate with the Nazis. By 1939, it was running little more than a few petrol stations, most of its market having been seized by its collaborationist rivals Esso and Shell. Another goodie, the American company Sinclair Oil liquidated its German operation before the war. It got its cash out, I think we told you in an earlier discussion, buying a vast number of German iron pipes, which it then sailed away and used in all its installations around the world. Well, what these examples plainly tell us is that the companies who stayed lacked the moral will to remove themselves. To a greater or lesser extent, they willingly allied themselves to be expanding parts of German rearmament. Nettleton wasn't the only British or American businessman who was in Germany in the terrible hours of the 9th to the 10th, November 1938. The others, it seems, chose to look away. Ford Cologne, for example, promptly fired its boss, Eric Diestel, because he was 1 16th Jewish. 
And in fact, under the Nazi Nuremberg laws of 1935, Eric Dichtel didn't even count as Jewish. He counted as Aryan. Like the American companies, many British banks and businesses chose to remain in Hitler's Germany, even though they got caught up in financing and enabling Nazi rearmament. The point is, it could all so quickly have been brought to a halt. The whole racket by which British and American companies claimed to have been trapped by Nazi regulations in Germany could, we argue, have been halted in its tracks. From at least 1934, the British Committee for Imperial Defence's new Industrial Intelligence Centre was completely aware of the Germans' desperate need for raw materials. And so, as we've seen before, were the Americans. But it was the British Empire that led the world in supplying the materials the Nazis wanted. Cut off the supply and there'd be no war. In fact, there might within a short space be no Hitler either, whatever his bluster. But here's the thing. The Nazis needed to borrow money so that they could finance industry, which would then make things they could export to Britain, so that they could obtain pounds sterling which they needed if they wanted to buy raw materials from the British Empire. You find this? <laughs> no, I'm not following this. <laughs> they also needed pounds sterling to service their British debts. So the British government either needed to ban raw material exports to Germany or ban lending to German industry. But it did neither. By 1938, Germany was second only to India as a market for British exports and particularly raw materials, including scrap metal. Which, which of course, it was using to rearm. To rearm. Now, there was no secret. That year, John McGowan, commercial councillor at the British Embassy in Berlin, began submitting reports arguing that the German economy was entirely geared towards launching a war. And he was, of course, correct. Trade, McGowan argued, should be assessed according to its impact on security, not just the economy. McGowan's bosses at the Foreign Office privately thought that McGowan was, quote, rather rattled and losing his sense of proportion. They did, however, circulate his reports around Whitehall. Now, Sir Frederick Leith Ross, uh, Leithers to his colleagues, the government's economic advisor, did now somehow persuade the Board of Trade to try to get British companies to export a little more manufactured goods and a little less raw materials. But there was still no general agreement, and coal, for example, still made up over 60% of British exports to Germany. Besides, somebody pointed out that Britain was importing from Germany the very machinery that the British needed to make shells and bombs. So how could Britain possibly rearm itself without keeping the trade with Germany going? Excuse me, <laughs> arming your enemy. The Board of Trade and the Treasury together saw that McGowan's reports were buried. It isn't as if the British government couldn't have taken a tougher line with the Germans. In 1938, Hitler occupied Austria. Technically, therefore, the Germans also took over the Austrian war debts from the First World War, worth about £675,000 a year to Britain. Well, they refused to pay them. The British government now abruptly terminated a technical agreement between the two countries, Germany and Britain, the 1934 Anglo-German Transfer Agreement. And the result was that the Germans very quickly agreed to pay the Austrian debts. 
the British had been able successfully to bully the Germans. But only, it appears, when British bankers' money was at stake. This British feebleness has been called economic appeasement, giving way to the Germans in the hope that they would eventually stop making demands. But it was much deeper than that. Historian Neil Forbes argues that the British were racked with guilt that their own sharp devaluation of the pound in 1931 had partly caused the German economy to crash. They also believed that they needed the German economy to be strong if their own was to prosper. But it was also partly a product of British bureaucratic bumbledom and the superciliousness of the old boy brigade. On the 19th of March 1939, four days after the Germans had marched into Czechoslovakia and got into Prague, Orm Sargent, deputy head of the Foreign Office, who'd always been rather against clamping down on Germany, finally wrote a despairing memo to the Etonian Tory Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax. He complained of the, quote, tangled undergrowth of departmental obstructionism that was preventing any action to contain Hitler. Halifax raised it in Cabinet. Oliver Stanley, the Etonian Tory President of the Board of Trade, responded by asking whether he was seriously suggesting they destroy the German economy no matter what the cost to Britain. This is March 1939, you remember. They're digging trenches in Hyde Park. Meanwhile, the Etonian Tory Governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, meekly transferred all the Czech gold deposits held at the Bank of England over to the German Reichsbank. Well, legally, that was what he was supposed to do. And for the Governor of the Bank of England, observing the legal banking niceties was more important than preventing world war. Or maybe he still thought he owed a favour to his old friend, Hjalmar Schacht, until recently President of the Reichsbank. And on Montague Norman's own admission, the source of everything he knew about Germany. Well, what all this comes down to was a failure to resolve the problem of how to balance, or even intelligently to discuss how to balance, British prosperity with British security. As seems to happen repeatedly in Britain, it was the financiers who exploited the mess, pulling strings on the right wing of British politics to enrich themselves at everybody else's expense. As historian Neil Forbes has argued, British decline since the 19th century has consistently ended up with businesses putting short-term profits before everything and everyone else. And our recent experience with the coronavirus tells us that it's still going on. And then, of course, there was the whole matter of the communists. British government's failure to do anything in the 1930s, especially about the money that was pouring from British banks into Nazi Germany, was part bumbledom, part a belief that British prosperity depended on a strong German market, and part fear of a British financial collapse if the German economy crashed or the Nazis pulled the plug on British loans. But we don't yet think we've got to the bottom of British willingness to finance Hitler's war machine. In 2021, Princeton and Oxford universities published historian Jonathan Haslam's book, The Spectre of War. What Haslam argues is that the other fundamental reason, perhaps the most fundamental reason British governments allowed Hitler to flourish, was because they convinced themselves that he was the best defence they had against the spread of Soviet communism. As Hazen points out, what we might loosely call the British establishment was strikingly naive about Mr Hitler. 
Arnold Toynbee, the popular historian who worked for a while in the Committee for Imperial Defence's Industrial Intelligence Centre, met Hitler in February 1936, and he confessed that he was, quote, rather impressed. Geoffrey Dawson, the Etonian Tory editor of The Times, was another. Hitler and the other fascist leaders were, he supposed, quote, reasonable men. Everything could be sorted out with them. Halifax, the Etonian Tory foreign secretary, congratulated Hitler personally on his, quote, great services in Germany, and in particular on, quote, keeping communism out of this country. Having met Hitler, Neville Chamberlain notoriously told his sisters that, quote, here was a man who could be relied upon when he had given his word. The Etonian Tory Anthony Eden once explained to Ivan Maisky, the Russian ambassador in London, that men like Dawson, Halifax or Chamberlain regarded Hitler and Mussolini as if they were English, quote, businessmen or country gentlemen. As Haslam points out in his book, men like Halifax and Chamberlain thought of communism as an ideology, a theory, which was a very un-English way to go about things. By contrast, the British establishment imagined that fascism was just a rather unpleasant way of running a normal government like theirs. <laughs> to change a communist, you would have to engage in an intellectual argument, which was a frightfully ungentlemanly thing to have to do, not the sort of thing you'd do over a dinner table. They fondly believed instead that you could talk a Nazi round with a bit of manly banter. The world's economy might be in a mess. Hitler was seizing more and more of Eastern Europe, but everything could surely be sorted out if only reasonable men talked about it sensibly over a cup of tea. Or a glass of port. But, yeah, but Hitler was teetotal. Mm -hmm. As if the whole threat of Nazism would be averted once Mr Hitler got round to accepting his invitation to the vicar's fate. Deep down, Hitler or Schacht was one of us, something a Soviet Bolshevik could never be. You couldn't do business with a Russian. Well, we've both made films with Russians. And, well, it is true, Russians can be exceedingly difficult to do business with. It seems to take time to win their trust and to establish straightforward communication. It can be done, but it's much more effort than talking to Germans. But the key to it is that influential Britons were, of course, terrified by Marxist communism which they now imagined sweeping away their inherited estates and money-making businesses. What doesn't often get mentioned is that the British sent an army to Russia in 1918 to try to defeat the Bolshevik Revolution. Can you imagine the horror of being a conscripted soldier surviving the Western Front, only to find yourself not demobbed and sent home to your family, but packed off to Siberia? Why don't we know more about that? don't think the British army want to remember it. They were roundly defeated. But you have to say that there's more to it than just a British lazy failure to come to terms with what was going on in Soviet Moscow. Up until the 1920s, the British had had very real reasons to be anxious about what the Russians were doing. The British had known since before the turn of the century that their empire was impossible to defend and that it would not be difficult for a hostile Russian government to cut off British interests in India or the Far East. Leon Trotsky had indeed argued that, quote, the road to Paris and London lies through Afghanistan, Punjab and Bengal. In the 1920s, there was a naive optimism in Soviet Moscow that Western capitalism would soon collapse. On the 2nd of March 1919, Moscow established the Communist International, or Comintern, an organisation 
openly dedicated to world revolution. Deciphered Soviet communications began to show Russian attempts to infiltrate the armed forces in Western Europe. Now, Russia was extremely poor, and none of this presented any significant threat to Britain. But it did look ominous, and especially so when in January 1924, a Labour government was elected in Britain for the first time. Which, of course, was socialist and not in any way communist. But of course, the British had never been able to concentrate for long enough to understand the difference between them. The first Labour government only lasted nine months and lost the election of October 1924, despite increasing its popular vote. A major reason for the Tory victory that year was a sensational story that broke in the Tory Daily Mail just before Election Day. It revealed a letter allegedly from Comintern in Moscow, supposedly instructing British communists to prepare for revolution. Well, the so-called Zinoviev letter is still controversial. But a Foreign Office investigation in 1998 and 1999 concluded that it was almost certainly forged by Tsarist Russians and then leaked to the mail by British intelligence MI6. And that was even though the MI6 agents knew that it was a forgery. (laughs) The point is, the old British establishment was definitely going to make absolutely sure that there were no more Labour governments. It would do whatever it took. And actually, a subsequent Tory government claimed in 2017 that it had somehow lost the file on the Zinoviev letter. Somehow lost the file on the Zinoviev letter. (laughs) Oh, anyway, then there was the question of China and the communist control of Mahatma Gandhi. What? One of the most important reasons that the British government did nothing to prevent British money being used to arm Nazi Germany was that British conservatives were scared witless that communism would spread from the Soviet Union. The British Foreign Office was in a state of cold panic about the whole empire. In February 1925, the rising young diplomat, who was later to be on the German hit list, Harold Nicholson, gasped to the cabinet that Russia was, quote, an incessant, though shapeless menace, the most menacing of all our uncertainties. And there was some evidence of the threat. In 1925, the British began to be aware of Russian influence in China, which the British regarded as effectively part of their own empire. This is long before China became communist. Intercepted telegrams and documents seized in the Soviet embassy in Beijing showed that the Soviets were funding strikes and backing paramilitary forces that threatened to overthrow the Chinese government. Well, for a moment, the British military actively contemplated going to war in China. Eventually, they did a deal with Chiang Kai-shek's Chinese nationalists. And by 1927, they'd stamped out the Chinese communists. But by now, there had been serious damage to British influence in China enormous British investments there would now be at the mercy of Chang and of events beyond British control. The British also convinced themselves that the Soviets were behind Gandhi in India and the early stirrings of Indian independence. That's an extraordinary idea. It was true that Comintern was actively trying to recruit poor Indians and to launch a struggle against British capitalism. And for many decades, the Russians had known, and the British had known that the Russians had known, that India 
was the weakest part of the British Empire. But there was no evidence at all that in the 1920s or 1930s, Moscow was behind any campaign for Indian independence. Indian leaders like Gandhi, Nehru and Jinnah occasionally showed some intellectual interest in communism, but that was a very long way from being controlled by Moscow. In fact, Moscow was actively discouraging talk of independence in India. Why would they want to hand a nation from rich British overlords to rich Indian ones? Moscow wanted a proletarian revolution, not a transfer of assets. You might argue that in the years before Hitler took power, the British could perhaps have had some justification for regarding Soviet Russia's interference around their empire with a measure of suspicion. You know, all those strikes in China and Soviet propaganda in India. But by the beginning of Hitler's Third Reich in 1933, the situation had profoundly changed. Now, it used to be said that Joseph Stalin, who consolidated himself in power by 1929, wasn't interested in world revolution. We now think that he did continue to push Comintern to encourage communist movements in other countries. But it's equally clear that after 1929, Stalin's Soviet Union turned dramatically inwards in a brutal series of internal convulsions. They began with a forcible collectivisation of the farms, which was followed by a grim programme of extremely rapid industrialization, accompanied in the mid-1930s by a gruesome series of purges. Equally important for us, in 1930, Maxim Litvinov took over as People's Commissar of Foreign Affairs. That's Moscow's foreign minister. And he came strongly to believe that the threat of a resurgent Germany demanded that the other countries of Europe work together. Germany must not be permitted to march into Eastern Europe. That's why in 1933, for example, the Soviets at last applied to join the League of Nations. Working together against Germany was the only way. Now, the important thing is that this was a policy tirelessly explained <laughs> to anyone in Britain who would listen by Litvinov's close and old friend, the Soviet ambassador to London from 1932, Ivan Maisky. But... British intelligence signally lacked the, well, lacked the intelligence to work any of this out. And the rather cultured Maisky in his crumpled suit and perhaps rather unvarnished Russian manners was widely befriended by the British intelligentsia, including the economist Maynard Keynes and the writer George Bernard Shaw, and equally widely snubbed by London Tory society. Who much preferred Joachim Ribbentrop, the vain and by universal agreement stupid wine salesman who was Hitler's foreign envoy at large from 1934. Ribbentrop was rumoured to be having an affair with the American socialite Wallace Simpson, who later married Edward VIII. We have a series about them. He once greeted King George V with a Nazi salute. All of this in London high society mattered because events were moving so very fast in Europe. In the economic chaos that spread throughout Europe in the months immediately before and the years after the Wall Street crash, significant communist organisations began to appear in France and Spain. And that, of course, made the Soviet threat look a whole lot worse than it had before. As we shall see next time at the History Café. There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Cafe, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafe.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Cafe Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing, 
follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too. Thank you.